Welcome to Nashville to Memphis, a podcast hosted by Dr. Jason Lee McKinney, a recording artist, songwriter, and the rock star professor. N2M is a podcast where Jason and a guest or two literally talk on the phone while Jason is driving down I-40. The only subject criteria is that this podcast is all about the random crap Jason thinks about. So, all of you podcasters and audiophiles, just chill on the sound quality, you dig? Jason is a front pocket theologian, back pocket socio philosopher, and a jockstrap surveyor of the music industry. You may not be able to make sense of it all, but that's okay. Neither can he. Thanks for listening to Nashville to Memphis. Don't forget to rate and write a review for the podcast on iTunes. You can find it under the title Nashville to Memphis. You can reach the podcast at www.facebook.com slash Nashville to Memphis. And check out Jason's music at www.jasonleemckinneyband.com as well as iTunes and Spotify under Jason Lee McKinney Band. Welcome back to N2M. Today's episode of N2M, I rotary dial my guy in the 615, Dr. James Agee. Jay is one of only four people originally from Seaford, Delaware. No electoral votes for you. Jay holds a BA from Eastern Nazarene College, an MA from Trebekah Nazarene University, PhD from State University of New York in Albany. Jay teaches at Trebekah Nazarene University in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. A.G. teaches business and psychology at the undergraduate, the graduate, and the doctoral level. He has even given a TED Talk, I hear. He is a hopeless Vanderbilt fan anchored down, way down. He lives in Mount Juliet with his wife and three children. So Jay and I sit down to discuss generational differences, the effectiveness of incentives, intrinsic motivators, and how Gen X should really be renamed Generation Awesome. So sit back, buckle up, and adjust the rear view. The exits for Somerville and Camden are just ahead on this week's episode of Nashville to Memphis. So Jay, you are a a professor at Trebekah Nazarene University of uh, all things business. And uh, how many degrees? You have a degree in psychology. And a, and then a doctorate, like you have, like like you kind of go, you branch out a little bit in your degrees. What are your degrees exactly in again? Like kind of in a weird order. I got my uh, bachelor's degree in business, uh, concentration in accounting. Um, as as you know, I actually went to law school right out of right out of undergrad, and I dropped out after four days. That's a whole other story. Um, <laughs> That's another podcast. That's another podcast, uh, Finding Yourself at Age 22. Um, took, took some time off, drove a forklift. I guess I was getting a degree in life uh, doing that. Uh, ended up going back and, and getting a Ph.D. at the State University of New York. Uh, and then uh, after I had finished that, after I had started my first first gig here at Trevecca, then I, that I decided to go back and get a master's degree in, in counseling. Um, not because I ever really wanted to be a counselor per se, but I just, I found, I found the field interesting. Um, I had actually some time on my hands then. I can't even fathom doing that now with, with kids and running the soccer fields and play practices with the kids and all that good stuff. I can't imagine going back, but at the time I, I had had a little bit of time on my hands and decided to do that. Uh, so that's, that's it. That's well, that the psychology is actually a great, uh, sequitur into what we're going to talk about today. We're, Talk about um, you did a TED talk and it was kind of based around incentives. I, I want to use that as a launching board uh, for mm. kind of discussion in society and 
and politics. And I want to bring in some something that I actually believe I we talked about in one of your classes way back when I was in one of your classes about the differences in generations, like uh, mm-hmm. the Gen X versus baby boomers versus millennials, and just so they how they approach and experience, kind of drawing back to incentives, how they how they um, engage with. Uh, culture and and society differently, and and even the workplace. So, can you give me like the sort of two minute time capsule of your TED talk there, <laughs> or it can be three you and a half. That's fine. Yeah, well, I mean, kind of, kind of a couple of different things there. You know, you brought up the the generations, and and I don't I don't consider myself an expert on the whole generational differences. Uh, one of the, it's not an area where I've done much research. Uh, you know, from what I've read, it, what they say about baby boomers is that baby boomers, their incentives had more to do with, with financial. You know, they, they wanted prestige. They wanted the financial uh, that was very big to them. You know, the origins of, of why that is, I, I, I couldn't really say. Whereas they say that your your millennials tend to be more uh, concerned with with time off and those types of things, you know, not that they're anti-money per se, but, but they, they value leisure, uh, more, um, you know, anecdotally uh, my, in my work with millennials, I, I see that, um, you know, I'm, I'm Gen X as, a, as are you. And, and I would say we're kind of across, you know, anecdotally again, kind of across between, we certainly don't turn down the bonus, but I, I think we don't necessarily work, you know, 80 hours a week because we're concerned about getting the Beamer or the Mercedes. I mean, we, we certainly have a, a desire for the, for the time off. Um, but again, I'm, you know, millennial research on millennials, baby boomers, while I'm familiar with it, I'm certainly not an expert in that area. As far as my, as far as my Ted talk goes, um, it, it dealt with just the power of incentives. And, I, and I'm certainly not the first one to, to talk about that. I, I'm a big, big fan of, of uh, Freakonomics, both the, both the books, but really the podcast. Uh, I binged, binged their podcast over the past six months, just literally listened to every single one. And just a big fan of, of, of uh, Dubner and, and Levitt, you know, just this idea that uh, we are, in many respects, um, a reflection of incentives. Not, not that everything in life we do is, is about incentives, but incentives really do explain a lot. Um, you know, one, one of the examples I gave in that, that TED talk, uh, you know, dealt with, with potty training. Um, just a quick funny story about that. So I gave this TED, you know, in that TED talk, I talked talk about potty training my daughter and how incentives and, and all this good stuff uh, with that and kind of some funny things that happened in potty training and basically how my daughter abused the incentive system. Like she knew what she had to do to get the incentive and she, she basically, uh, you know, kind of milk it for all it's worth, so to speak, to, to get more of the incentives. And as I'm listening to that podcast months ago, binging it, uh, Dubner basically tells the same story that I told in my podcast. And I was mortified, just absolutely <laughs> mortified. Like, did, after, did, did he, he say TM circle? Did he say that afterwards? Well, that's the thing. I'm like, man, he, he stole my stuff. I can't believe he stole my stuff. Like, that is messed up. Like, how dare, like... Like as if these dudes aren't famous enough, they got to be ripping off some like Treveca faculty member on his on his you know TED talk. And so like I quickly like you know push the button on the phone and see that that like their story predated me by like a few years, and I was like, oh crap! Like 
I totally <laughs> ripped off Freakonomics. <laughs> so either one of two things happened there. Either a, you know, they, I had heard this story from them well, you know, way back, and it got implanted in my head, or that uh, Dubner's daughter was just as devious uh, as my daughter. Uh, and, and respond and in terms of responding to incentives. And honestly, I don't know what it is. I don't know if, if I was, you know, somehow had secretly buried their story in my mind and, and thought it was my own or that, that, you know, their children basically did what my children, uh, did. Um, you know, in the podcast, I also talk about incentives and, and you and I have discussed, uh, uh, politics, excuse me. You and I have discussed politics on, on several occasions and, you know, I, I think incentives are so alive and well in in politics in, in terms of mm-hmm. politicians want votes. <laughs> that That is their candy, so to speak. Politicians want votes, and they're going to do things to get those votes. And, and some people would say, well, isn't that a good thing? Like, don't we want them responding to voters? And I guess my answer to that is not really. Like, I, I mm. don't. I don't want politicians doing things to get my vote. I want politicians doing what is right. <laughs> right. Now, Correct. granted, what they define as right may not be defined, may not be what I define as right, but I want them doing what they think is in the best interest of this country, not simply trying to appease uh, their constituents. And again, that sounds like a really backwards thing, and, and I don't want to you know, make it too complex or convoluted here, but, but in my TED Talk, I talk about the fact that really, let's take a district that's you know, 60% Republican and 40% Democrat, right? Or, or you know, for that matter, 55% and 45%. But anyway, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a district that's, that's Democrat, or excuse me, a, a district that's Republican. Or it could be a district that's heavily Democrat, regardless. Well, what we know about elections is that usually there there are folks who are just diehards, and they are going to come out and vote regardless. I mean, these are the people who, you know, if it's a vote for the assistant dog catcher, they're out there voting. They're right, just diehards. Straight ticket no matter what. Like, this, that is their deal. Exactly. And, and they're going to vote regardless. They're diehards. Well, you know, I, I don't know what percentage of each party that is, but, you know, for the most part, it's, it's probably a pretty small percentage. You know, most voters in this country aren't necessarily extremist diehards. And, and so if you're talking about a primary, you can have an individual who doesn't really appeal to the party as a whole, but they appeal to the diehards. And... Right. They vote to appease the diehards. They 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 vote to appease the, the far left or far right of their party, and so they get the votes of those far left or those far right in their party, and then they win the primary. Well, you know, if you win the primary in a district that's sixty percent Democrat or sixty percent Republican, you're going to then win the general election. Right. And so, you know, it's an example I gave in my TED Talk where, you know, and I had some slides kind of illustrating this, is, is you eventually end up with someone who win, you know, wins the district, you know, wins the general election, represents the district, who really only appealed to a very small percentage of the entire district. You know, they, they, they appealed to 
a small part of their particular party, and it happened to be the people who voted. And then everyone else in the party followed along and voted for that person in the general election. And that person gets to Washington, and they're going to, you know, if they're represented, they're going to be there for two years. And they realize that, that they've got these diehards, these, 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 these hardcore left or hardcore right people who are watching them like a hawk. And so they're doing what they can to appease that small group of their district who doesn't really represent the district. Um, and so, you know, to, to me, that's kind of a problem. I, I think that leads to just a lot of the, the very, very partisan politics that we have, you know, in Washington uh, is that people are just appeasing to the fringes of their party, whether it's a Republican, uh, you know, appeasing the far right of their party or Democrats appeasing the far left of their party who tend to be the real activists in the party. You, you don't hear about activist centrists very often, you know, you right. hear about activists. Exactly. And so people are, are you know, uh, really appeasing. But I guess the question is why, you know, why is this different now than before? You know, couldn't you have always said this about our political system? You know, why are we more partisan? I think it has a lot to do with just social media. And, you know, is, is if, if a politician doesn't you know, sort of walk the way you want or vote the way you want or do what you want, I mean, you can you can just trash them on social media uh, you know, whether it be Facebook, whether it be Twitter, whether it be whatever, uh, you know, in a matter of seconds of that vote taking place, that so-and-so's a rhino or so-and-so's a this or so-and-so's a that. And it really starts to push our politicians very far to the right and very far to the left, again, to appease those, you know, those kind of those, I don't know if fringe is the right word, but more, the more radical elements in their party. You know, so what's the solution? So the, oh, the sister, though. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm saying, so the center, though, is is kind of the where the majority, the kind of the 80-20 rule, the majority of us, or I will go ahead and put myself in that category, live in somewhere in the center. You know, it's on a spectrum. It's a continuum. You can be center leaning this direction on this issue or that direction. But that voter tends to be less motivated, right, than the extreme. You may or may not get the centrist to vote. Yeah, it, it, it certainly seems like that. I mean, it, it certainly seems like that you, of course, it may be who's hollering the loudest, but it certainly, it certainly seems like the far left and the far right holler the loudest. Um, they certainly seem like the more motivated voter. Um, and as such, I mean, who, who's going to get the attention of the, uh, the person who's fighting for their life in a primary? Uh, right. You know, if I'm a politician, I'm giving, I'm going to give the squeaky wheel the attention. Uh, I want to go back to Washington. <laughs> right. And, that, and that's, a, you know, I, I'm pointing out kind of my own hypocrisy there. And that is that, you know, I, 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 I don't like that politicians do that. I don't like, I don't like that politicians are responding to this incentive and peeving the, the far right and far left of their, of their parties. But I get it. You right. know, if I'm, in, if I'm in Washington, I have a really cushy job. Um, I have all this respect and power or whatnot. I probably want to hold on to that. And, and so I'm going to look for the path that gets me back to Washington. And, you know, if, if, the, if the far you know, right or left of my party only represents a fraction of the party, but they're the most powerful vocal voting block of that party, then by golly, I'll probably do what they want. Uh, whether I agree with it or not. <laughs> right. Again, the power of incentives. 
and, and, you know, most of us will, will rationalize those decisions. We'll say, well, you know what, I, I did this to get back in power, and I didn't really agree with it, but I'm okay doing it because long-term I'll do the right thing. No, you won't. You're right. up for election every two years. You're going to keep bending over backwards and, and you know, voting for policies you don't necessarily agree with. So you, can, you can keep going back to Washington by appeasing a small percentage of your district. It and, seems like, uh, though, this, this leads to binary thinking. Where there's much more us versus them, like instead of like you know uh, the 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 issue being in the center of the room, because you're pe- you know the politician is appeasing to the extremes, and because now we have what they call c- citizen journalists, where everyone's opinion matters. Well, I mean, it doesn't really matter, but everyone can at least publicly spew their opinion in one direction or the other. It it. Does it would I mean and, and this is all opinion and speculation we obviously haven't researched this but it seems to me it would create binary thinking and much more of a us versus them instead of we're Americans trying to figure out solutions where we may disagree on issues but we don't it's not good guy bad guy we've gotten into a really I keep going back to the term binary thinking but but if that makes sense that seems to be growing the 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 distance and the gap between between the ideologies seems to be pretty cavernous at this point. Oh, I, I definitely think so. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a political scientist by training. I, I'm a social scientist, but, but I, I'm fascinated by politics. Not, I mean, it's, it's gory and it, you know, it's one of those things like driving down the road in this car wreck. You don't really want to look at it, but you can't help it. <laughs> right. Um, it, it's gory, but I can't help but look at it. It, it just, not because of the policy side, but just the sort of the human side of it. And yes, I, I definitely think there's a plus against them. And again, I think that comes from, you know, the far left is so different from the far right. And because politicians typically are having to appease those, particularly in the House, particularly in the House, are having to appease the far left and far right. I mean, they're almost forced to, to be the arch enemy of the other side because if they're not the arch enemy of the other side, then they're not quite appeasing their, their, uh, you know, their constituents like they're supposed to be. I, it, I think it's very dangerous. You know, as you and I have talked over coffee before, you know, I, I consider myself to be, you know, right leaning and, and, and generally a free market guy. I think, I think the free market, you know, is the solution to a lot of things. But having said that, I readily admit that, you know, the free market, you know, falls apart in some situations. The free market does not solve everything, that there's a role for government. But, uh, you know, you wouldn't hear too many politicians, uh, particularly in the House, um, admit that, that there are some conservative solutions to certain things and there's liberal solutions to certain things. I mean, that person would never get elected. Um, right. Or I shouldn't, say, I shouldn't say never. In the House, it would be very, very hard to. I mean, you have some centrist senators um, because they're representing entire states. But, you know, in districts, in districts tend to be more partisan because of the, gerry, uh, because of the gerrymandering that's, that's uh, taking place in terms of drawing districts. But partisan districts, I mean, you, you almost have to march to the beat of, of you know, the far right to far left of your party. So it seems, um, you know, obviously it depends on the, on the certain district. I guess the question is, what's the solution to it? I don't know that there is a solution, really. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in term limits. Uh, you know, I, I think if you you got to Washington and you only had one or two terms, then, then you're not really concerned with um, appeasing the far right or far left in your base. You're, you're more concerned with doing the right thing because 
you're only you're going to be there for a certain term. You're gone. Uh, some would, people would say, oh, some people would say, oh no, that's terrible. I mean, we'll lose all this experience in Washington if we have term limits. And my response to is that a bad thing? <laughs> like, right. Um, if, if we started over every few years with new folks there, is that really a bad thing? I think I'd be okay with that. So. Wouldn't campaign finance, especially in the upper levels, I mean, obviously, if you're running for alderman, campaign finance is probably not much of an issue. I mean, did you spend 200 bucks on your signs and the other guy spent 175? You know, yeah. not going to make a whole lot of difference. But when you get into the upper, this, the Senate and presidential, I, I mean, I tend to, uh, you know, I, I tend to lean towards being a third party guy. And I mm-hmm. think there's such a hill to climb financially. People always talk about, well, I would, and I hear this from people all the time, I'd vote for a third party candidate if they could win. And that's such a weird thinking to me because it's like, well, you know, they might be able to win if you would stop saying that and actually vote for a third party. But you can't yeah. deny that part of it is just the lack of financial resources. The two main parties have such an advantage that I, mm-hmm. I agree with term limits, but I also think, I mean, what are your thoughts on campaign finance, like reform? Mm. I, I, very, very mixed feelings. I, I, there, there are a lot of things in life I sit the fence on. This, this is one I very much sit the fence on. Um, I, on one hand, I can see, yes, let's have camp, you know, campaign finance. You don't have a few wealthy donors who, who, you know, form super PACs and swing the whole thing. So I see that side of things. You know, do, do we want money, you know, determining elections? Uh, you know, the power of super PACs is just, you know, appears to have gotten out of hand. Right. Uh, on the other hand, though, I, you know, I, I come back to just this freedom. Uh, you know, shouldn't folks have the right to to give money and you know put money where they want? Uh, I'd be certainly in favor of more disclosure of where money's coming from, uh, sort of the shadow money that's operating in super PACs. So I'm going to be very non-committal uh, <laughs> fence sitting. On this. Wow, which, and, that's very and, that's very politician of you. <laughs> I know. Well, honestly, honestly, I, yeah, it is. Um, it, I think there's a number of issues where people actually they fit that they they sit the fence, but then they they take issues. Politicians, that is, you know, they'll they'll take the left side or the right side um, because they know they have to appease their constituents. When in fact, they you know, so many issues are nuanced. You know, it's, it's not a it's not a black or white. Um, right. So. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to Michael Jackson, though. Michael Jackson. Yeah, so that's true. Black that's white. true. I, he caught me there. He caught he, me there. He, I, and he he stated that clearly. He, you know, he said. But um, anyway, I was, so I was I was in a hotel in Scranton, Pennsylvania, the day he, the day he passed away. I'll never forget it. I was out. Really? In the, uh, yeah, I was in the little continental breakfast area that night, uh, grading some assignments. And uh, I, I know this is this is really pertinent to our podcast here, but. Uh, <laughs> It, it came across uh, came across the airways. Michael Jackson had died, and, and I felt like my childhood had been stolen from me. Because um, uh, you know, as a child of the of the eighties, uh, man, uh, I mean, what would be a school dance without Billie Jean? Um, so anyway, I was more of the I, I felt that way when Prince died. I was pretty floored. Yeah, okay. I, was like, I got about okay. fifty texts from people saying, "You're the first person I thought of." I mean, I was a, a Prince freak when I was a kid. Um, okay. Thank you so much for listening to Nashville to Memphis. I hope you enjoy it. I truly value your time and appreciate your listenership. Please go on iTunes and give us a rating. Five stars helps. It goes a long way. Write a sentence or two. 
In addition to that, if you wouldn't mind, I love doing this podcast. It is definitely a passion play for me. But like everything else in life, it does cost a little bit of money. So if you would, go to Spotify and follow the Jason Lee McKinney Band. Give us a stream or two and put us on your playlist. And then also go into iTunes and download a song or two. We have five albums out. And it truly goes a long way. Every download counts. Every single one. Share us with your friends. Check it out. Support the podcast. Support the band. JasonLeeMcKinneyBand.com. Spread it around to all your friends, neighbors, and fans. Yourself. And I truly appreciate listening to Nashville to Memphis. Back to the show. Okay. Speaking of generations, um, yes. I want to try to tie the incentive thing at least a little bit and, and, and totally no, I'm not asking you to speak from a, a place of Professor Ag. I'm just asking Jay to give completely conjectured opinions from this point forward, completely conjectured opinions on, okay, so the way that we got politicians and we got incentives, both in the workplace and at in the political realm. We're kind of having this – I'll call it the uh, the clash of the cultures, the millennials versus the Xers kind of thing. And <laughs> some of that, I really think it, – personally, it's just cyclical. The older generation always kind of gets to that stay-off-my-lawn point. They, they just do. So it, it's just part of it. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, there's some very real things like you know, if you, if you kind of look at the generations, the first thing that Xers came in with, even if we weren't born yet, was – uh, Watergate, the end of Vietnam, uh, the gas crisis, Iran Contra. It, it's like it's basically like mom and dad might get divorced. They probably both work, cook your own dinner, and mm-hmm. created this sort of Gen X, really hard work ethic. But but maybe we don't enjoy working in groups as much. Like I know when I was <laughs> in school, the thing I hated the most is when. The, the professor said, hey, we're going to have you guys all work in groups. And I was like, okay, that means there's going to be three of us doing work and one guy that's going to get whatever grade we get him. That's just how that's going to go. So, But yeah. but millennials, because we both teach, millennials, <clears throat> and on a positive thing, they thrive on working in a group. But the motivation is different. We are much more, I have found, leave me alone, let me do it, I'll do it myself, I'll do it great. And then just go away. Like I don't like I don't want to social you know. Mm, millennials yeah. are very much about experience. And I have seen, and like you said anecdotally, that like I've actually had a student say, I got a said student uh an internship, a paid internship at a record label. They were gonna make for I mean, for a kid it was like forty grand a year. Like it was like Come on. That's, that's pretty good. And they turned it down because they realized they were gonna be kind of the they're gonna to have to run and get some coffee and do some things they didn't want to do and they were like but i don't want to do that i want to do that thing and i want my benefits package to be i want flex time and i want you know they want the daniel pink the results only work environment and that, yeah, that sort of yeah. thing and i'm and i am pro that but how does that give your just sort of off-the-cuff opinion on how that plays out in the work environment and how sure. that plays out in the political environment going forward Oh wow! Yeah, first off, let me be very, very clear. Uh, you, you said that I can move from professor mode to just me, you know, conjecture mode. I want to be clear; it's all been conjecture mode. <laughs> okay, 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 great. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, some of it's you know what I've talked about has been research based, but, but a lot of it just anecdotal observations. You know, my own thoughts. 
you know, kind of just from, from reading the political tea leaves. Uh, you know, I, I hate group projects. Uh, you know, in, in, in school, I didn't like them. Because um, you're a Gen Xer, that's why. Abs- absolutely. Well, you know, I don't know if that's the reason. I, that's, that's a good question. I just know I never liked them. I don't know if it was maybe Gen X, and maybe I'm just uh, you know very ridiculously Type A and and kind of an overachiever type, and uh, I don't like to rely on others. Um, it, it would be very interesting to see this generation, you know, Generation X versus Millennial, on how they feel about about group assignments. Um, and, and we talk about groups and teams in my org behavior class that I teach, and and I will have students raise their hand and say, "Hey, who in here like?" likes to work in on group projects or team assignments. And usually it's about half and half. About half the classes, hey, I love those. And the other half the classes, I hate them with a white, you know, hot burning passion. <laughs> and the, the 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 those that say they just hate them tend to be my better students. The ones that just really don't like the group projects are the students that uh are just very hardworking, overachieving types. And so I think there is, you know, that's sort of a commonality, I would guess, between Gen X and Gen Y is that, uh, you know, you're overachieving kind of of uh, type A, self-reliant, pull, your, by your, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstrap. They do not want to be in group projects and have to, you know, rely on others, so to speak. Um, right. You know, how does it relate to politics? You know, I've, I've tried to stay kind of anti, <laughs> let's just say anti, I've tried to stay neutral uh, right. thus far in my talk because I, I really I really see this, you know, incentives gone wrong in politics affecting both parties. I don't see it. I don't see something affecting the right. I don't see it or just the right or just the left. I, I think politicians responding to to the far fringes of their party affects both. Um, but in terms of millennials, I, you know, I do think the millennials uh, tend to, to, you know, vote. I don't think, I know millennials tend to, to vote more uh, democratic uh, mm-hmm. or less leaning. And, um, you know, if, if, if our hypothesis is correct, that, that they like groups and teams and, and believe in the collective, uh, then, then I, I think that maybe the left does kind of fit their narrative more. Uh, I'm not saying that's a, a good thing or bad thing, but I, I think they tend to to see, you know, the Republican Party is more individualistic, you know, stand mm-hmm. on your own kind of thing. And it doesn't fit necessarily with what they're comfortable with or what they believe in, right or wrong. Yeah, and no, I, I, I think as with anything, I believe there are positives in that and negatives in that and my my only fear is getting into a situation like like Greece, you know, where it's ooh now now how do we pay for stuff? And that's just a personal fear of mine. That could be me being a Gen Xer and going, I'm individual and I don't want, you know, yeah. the and yeah. and I think I don't I don't think it always goes there. I'm not some doomsday. I'm not being Alex Jones here saying, <laughs> you know, <laughs> go out and build your yeah. bunker and get your sixty gallon barrel water. But I'm saying yeah. that is something that I that that really. As Gen X, we are at the crest of our quote-unquote political and economic power, and like it or not, we're going to start to take that long, slow dive towards not being in the work environment or the political environment, the, mm-hmm. the power players. 
and yeah. partially politically just because we're such a small generation, we're just not the yeah. numbers where millennials are a much larger generation. As we do that, the danger I see, and I'll see if you agree or not, is that it could get – because we want to be collective and, and, and millennials want to take care of everyone, we could quickly get into a situation like Greece where you have more people – once you cross that line and there's more than 50% of people on government assistance, then you, you're never pulling that back because of the mm-hmm. votes. And yeah. I don't, I'm not saying – I'm not predicting it's going to go there. There, I think there's a way to handle it responsibly and still be very much about the collective. So I'm not also I'm not I'm trying to not be get off my lawn millennials, but I mm-hmm. I see that that would be one of the potential warning. Be careful of this. And so, what are your thoughts on that? Could there be any similarities for America 15 years from now and what happened in Greece? Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, one of the things you, you mentioned earlier, and I think this is very true. Uh, you know, I think a lot of times we we want to make it a, a baby boomer versus Gen X versus Gen Y, and our generations are so different. And and maybe you know there's there's some differences between them, but I I think it, a, a good amount of it just has to do with being young versus getting older. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, many of the things that we probably kind of uh, annoy us about about millennials isn't the fact that because they're millennials, it's just because they're 19, you know, and, and when we were 19, we were knuckleheads too. I was actually even talking about that in the class today. It's just that, you know, when I was 15 or 17 or 18, I mean, I was an idiot. I mean, I mean, I, I wouldn't, the 18 or 19 year old me, if I happened to run into that person, I wouldn't be able to stand him. <laughs> I, I had a buddy one time that said, uh, if I could take a time machine and go back in time, He's, I beat myself up. <laughs> oh yeah, I go back no and doubt. beat myself up. Oh no doubt. So yeah, I, I, I suppose, and, and my my eighteen or nineteen year old self then would beat me up now. <laughs> right, right. You'd be like, you know, like we would both be calling each other losers. You know. Oh yeah. So, so I don't, I don't know if it's if it's a, um, again, how much of it's a millennial thing or how much of it's just a young thing. So you know. So I, I don't know about that. I think a lot of it is just being young. And I think as the millennials get out and have jobs and, and full-time jobs and responsibilities and children and mortgages and car payments and, and all these things, uh, you know, I think their values, their priorities will shift just like mine did. I'm sure just like, you know, just like yours have. Um, yeah. Now, now how does that relate to, you know, to politics and the economy? Um you know, they, they've been saying literally since, you know, we hit our first, you know, trillion dollars, uh, you know, debt that this was unsustainable and it's eventually going to collapse. And, you know, and here we are now at, what, 19 trillion knocking on the door of 20 trillion. And, you know, we're still not to the brink yet. Um, but do I think that we're eventually going to get there? Yeah, I, I do think we're going to get there. Um at some point in time, we, we just can't – there will not be enough money to fund what we want to do. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's, a, it's a mathematical given. Uh, I mean, we will eventually have to either A, raise taxes, or B, dramatically cut benefits or both. Um, right. and, and getting back to benefits – or excuse me, incentives, getting back to incentives, that will be when politicians finally do something. Because right now you look around our society, our economy, and most people are like, yeah, it's not great, but it's okay. 
I mean, if you if you had a party that just said, you know what, we have really bad times on the horizon. Let's go ahead and make drastic changes now. Drastic. That party would be voted out of office tomorrow. Right. I mean, even though they, they would just, be correct. Yeah. It, yes. It, it, basically, the fact that they're trying to to to, to you know get ahead of this now, uh, we would we would punish that person. I mean, we that party would be just just destroyed. Um, so what's going to happen is we're going to be like Greece, most likely, uh, or Portugal or Spain or some of these other countries that, that followed behind Greece, not, not to the point that Greece did. But we're going to have to get literally on the edge of collapse before society essentially allows our politicians to make those decisions. And, and even if you look in Greece, at Greece, when they were trying to make these, these changes politically, when they were absolutely on the on you know collapsing, not on the brink of collapse, collapsing, uh, the residents of Greece were just throwing a fit. Like, how dare you guys do this? And it's like, are you kidding me? Like, we're collapsing. Right. You, you know? I mean, there's right. there's blood squirting out of us, and you're wondering why we're putting a bandaid on it. Like, it's 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 mind boggling. But I think that's finally when the politicians will respond. Is when the entire country finally goes, oh, we're having a problem. Right. Um, because until then, they would just be just, again, just horribly punished for, for taking steps to, to right our previous wrongs. A, a buddy of mine is a, um, a mayor of a small town, and he said most people's political opinions end at their driveway. Meaning that, that at the end of the day, people, as much as they want to be about all about society, they're really mostly they want that as long as it doesn't really affect them. Once it starts affecting them, they want no part of it. And so it, it has to uh, excuse, it has to get to the point where people go, oh, this is going to affect all of us. Like, we have to do this. Like, this for the greater good, which also oh. affects my driveway, too. <laughs> oh, no doubt. I mean, it's, it's aren't we all like that? I mean, it's, it's like not in my backyard. Like, right. yes, yes, please build that landfill. We need that landfill. We desperately need that landfill. Oh, by the way, it's going to be a quarter mile from you. Heck, no, it's not going to be a quarter mile right. from me. Like, like. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, every yes, we. Oh, what is wrong with people in that neighborhood who won't let the halfway house be built in their neighborhood? What is wrong with those people? Don't they understand those prisoners have to live somewhere? Well, you're all in favor of the you know the halfway house being built somewhere until again they want your neighborhood and it's like, well, wait, what? What about the children? Um, right. And, and that's how we are with you know uh, with policies. Everyone agrees, like, yes, we, or I shouldn't say everyone, but, but most people agree there needs to be some cut unless it's the program you support. And right. then once it's the program you support, then how dare they cut my program? What is wrong with them? Uh, so, again, that's why I say, I mean, we're, because of incentives, because of our fear of, a, you know, vocal minorities, uh, and by, by minorities I'm talking about um, – you know, numbers, not yeah. yes, not not groups. I don't want you know mean emails. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I'm not talking about groups here, but 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 small groups within who, who are just vocal about a particular issue. Uh, politicians are slow to respond. Social Security is a perfect example. Social Security is not a hard thing to solve. It's really not a hard thing to solve. But solving it uh, would make some folks upset. And so, again, right. politicians are going to wait until uh, literally we are bringing in uh, considerably less than we have, than we need to pay out benefits. And then they'll finally, at the brink of collapse, do something. Uh, but not until then. 
which is unfortunate because the longer we wait, the, the more difficult and painful it will be to solve it. And again, I don't blame our politicians. I blame, I blame voters. It's our fault. You know, if, if we vote like we had half a brain, um, <laughs> then, uh, you know, it'd be a little easier to deal with. All right. Well, that, that's great. I, I want to close up with this. Um, shift gears. So we talked about going back in the time machine. So here's what I want to know, and this may be the most important question, and I'll actually answer this question too. What was your poorest fashion choice in high school? The one you look back the most and go, really? You're an idiot. <laughs> I will tell mine, I did have the back of my hair permed at one point, and it was hideous. Not like the front, actually, just the back. Like you actually had it permed. Wow. I actually had it permed. It was wow. quite embarrassing. Wow. Oh, and I had now, I to wear half shirts to school all the time to show off my abs. That was super cool. I was like Rex Kwando wow. from Napoleon mm. Dynamite. Mm. Uh, yeah, so I'm okay. terrible. So what's your worst right. one? With you admitting those and making yourself vulnerable, I, I really feel open to say about anything at this point because I don't know <laughs> that I could. I don't know that I could be worse than a perm. Um, I did have a mullet. Uh, it was long, it was curly and, but, but it was natural curl. I want to be clear about that. It was natural curl. Uh, I did not have it permed and I would actually put mousse in it just so, you know, to kind of have a wet look, um, oh, okay. curls back there. That was, did it that get was crunchy bad. back like the, when the, when the mousse would get crunchy afterwards when it dried? A little, little crunchy, little, little crunchy. Yeah. But I mean, you know, all in the name of fashion. Right. Um, this one, I still, I don't really know. And, but the mullet was in style, so I could do that. This one, I don't really know if it was in style, so I still kind of question what I was thinking on this one. I actually had a pair of spandex shorts. Wow. That just hurt. That just hurts. <laughs> wow. And I, I think I wore them like two or three times. Not when you met your wife, right? Because she wouldn't no, be alive no, if you this, had those this on. Was well had those on. That. This, this was like this was like high school, junior high or okay. high school. And I wore I wore spandex shorts, and I think I actually wore those to school a few times. And uh, I think it just dawned on me one day, like, what the heck are you doing? Um, <laughs> well, I, luckily, you know, I've seen you, and we were we were built the same in high school. Showing yeah. off the the leg muscles that that doesn't really show off much for you or I. That's not really yeah. our go-to move. That's not our go-to yeah. move. <laughs> I will say, luckily, I had on. I, I did have enough sense those days to wear uh, like some longer t-shirts. So, gotcha. if I had worn like one of your half shirts with spandex, <laughs> then I would have needed to been shot on spot uh, just to put me <laughs> out of my misery. Uh, but that was a bad. Very, very bad fashion choice. Uh, I had some gray hush puppy shoes. Oh, uh, wow. I guess, I guess they kind of came back in style a few years ago, but they did. They, you wait they long shouldn't enough. have. They shouldn't yeah. have. They were bad then. They were bad this time, too. You know, the crazy thing is denim jackets. Like, nobody, I would have never thought they would have come back in style, and here everybody is wearing them now. Like, hey, I had one with a white lion patch on the back. Like, you know, is that cool yet? Oh, you got wow. my white lion patch. Wow. Now, I did have a denim jacket, and I got to tell you, I never felt that was a bad fashion decision. I, I felt like the denim jacket was a good look. I'm, I'm it's definitely it. back. 
It's definitely better. Yeah, I felt good about that one. But the, hey, I, I don't want to. I don't want to suck us back into the topic too far uh, of incentives. But I, I really got to say this. I, you know, I have been pointing the fingers at politicians and you know how they respond to incentives and shame on them. Um, I got to tell you though, uh, and, and I mean this with with hundred percent sincerity. The field of education, particular higher education, I think can be just as bad. Um, our our incentives are not voters. Our incentives, in many cases, are the the dreaded end of semester student evaluation. Oh yeah. And those end of semester student evaluations, uh, you know, particularly for a new faculty or particularly for an adjunct, uh, you know, that is their lifeblood to getting. Uh, asked to teach again. And, um, you know, basically what that leads to, and, and research does kind of support this, actually it doesn't kind of, it does support this, is, is that, uh, you know, that, that desire to, to get good evaluations and that desire to sort of scratch the back of students uh, leads to, to grade inflation. And right. uh, that's a problem. You know, they've, they've looked at the grade distribution of adjuncts versus full-time faculty versus tenure faculty. And, you know, adjuncts are giving out some, some, some pretty high grades there. Of course, you know, tenured and full-time do as well sometimes. But, but uh, I get it. I get why adjuncts do it. Um, you know, they want to be asked to teach again. Right. And so they're going to they're take care of those students and, and hope that they take care of them. Now, again, we're paying with a broad brush. It's not to say that all faculty do that or all adjuncts do that. Um, but, you know, I, I think the end of the course of eval, uh, should we get rid of them? Mm, I don't know that I'm saying that necessarily, uh, but should it be, you know, the sole source of evaluation for faculty? Uh, probably not. And, and that's what a lot of universities use. You know, the, the students have spoken, they didn't like this guy, so he's gone. Or the students have spoken, they love this guy, so he stays. And yet an administrator has never been in that classroom. Uh, to see them, and I'm not, I'm not picking on Trebek. I, I think, uh, you know, we do some, some innovative things here, but, but, uh, you know, across the country in higher ed, the yeah, all systemic problem. <clears throat> absolutely, absolutely. So it, it is, it is, it is nationwide, and I'm certainly, again, not the first one to point this out and 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 touch on this issue. But, but we have a lot of power to the students, and their voice is important. What they have to say matters, but. Uh, you know, catering to the students can lead to some pretty, pretty poor educational outcomes. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I have met professors that I would dare say are, this, this sounds extremist, afraid of the students. That, yeah, the, the, yeah. The afraid that, oh man, he's mad at me. I better figure out a way to get his grade, like, not get his grade up like I'm just going to hand it to him, but I better come up with some extra credit. I better, it's like, well, is it, is there really a benefit in the classroom to coming up yeah. with extra credit? No, but yeah. I'm afraid if I don't, he's mm-hmm. going to fail and he's going to rip me. Like I'm going to be, yeah. I'm going to get a zero. And yeah. I, I sell this, I, and I, and this is true. My evals, I had a class, one of my first classes I taught, I had 25 students. 20 of them literally said things like the best professor I've ever had in my entire life. Five of them would have said I was the biggest piece of crap, waste of humanity. How did he graduate high school? I think he needs to be put away in jail permanently. Yeah. And it was the same class. And uh-huh. I would say not all of them. One of them just didn't like me. Got a good grade, just didn't like me. The yeah. other four, they were the four lowest grade, grades in the class. And they oh, hardly sure they showed up, and they never turned yeah. up, turned in stuff. And it's like, yeah. so yeah. 
I, and so I went back and I told at the time, my supervisor was like, hey, the one that got an A that didn't like me, I'm going to take everything they said to heart and I'm going to try to work on that. The four that failed because they didn't show up half the time, didn't turn in grades, I don't really care what they have to say. <laughs> it's not really, they're not really trying to be constructive. They're just mad that they chose not to do the work and failed. So yeah. but I would dare yeah. say, I think there's, there are professors that are afraid of students and that's, that's an imbalance of power that we don't want. I don't think we want students yeah. to be afraid of professors either. I'm just saying anyone that's walking around in fear in a classroom, one side or the other, is not conducive to learning. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's uh, you know, I, again, I think, and I think you're spot on with everything you said, we care what the students say. They're, administrators are not in, in the classroom. They can't see exactly what's taking place there. So it, it matters what students say. They are the eyes and the ears in the classroom. But students know those evaluations carry so, or excuse me, students know they carry power and faculty know that the students have a lot of power. And, and so it, it can lead to some some faculty behaviors that, that make students happy, but just really don't improve or help the educational process. Um, and, and I, you know, I'll admit, I've certainly thought about student evaluations before. <laughs> right. Like, hmm, students may not like that or right. students may like that. You know, and, and not necessarily thinking as much about what value is this, but how will students you know, r- respond to this? Um, you know, I will say gotten, this. My, my son, who you had in class, said that mm-hmm. you're one of, one of, if not his favorite professor he had at Trebekah. And that's right. fine. I didn't pay him anything. I didn't Sweet. give him any money. He just said it unprompted. So Okay. I'll, I'll take that. I'll, I'll take that with the – and certainly value that. No, it's, and, and I love teaching. I really do. And I think as I've gotten more – um, comfortable in, my, in, in their career and I feel more stable and more secure. I think I'm more free to kind of do what I feel is right and not be holding to the students. But as you know, a junior faculty member and adjunct, uh, you, you really feel beholden to the students, uh, which, which is, you know, can be very unfortunate. So anyway, uh, one last thing, and, and that is that uh, if, if anything ever happened to Billy Joel, um, you know, I, I won't be able to leave my room for a week. Uh, big, wow! Big Billy Joel guy, yeah. So you, you mentioned Prince with you, so um, the Billy Joel thing would, would 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 hit me pretty hard. So just just saying. Yeah, our, uh, our rock stars are getting older. That's another podcast, but they're all getting older. They are, they are, they are, and and the ones replacing them. Well, I went on a trip this weekend with my daughter, and you know we had her stations on. Good gracious, <laughs> good <laughs> gracious. Now that right there is a Gen Xer. Get off my lawn. Because I heard yeah, all my dad about how their music was better, and I was like, ah, I'm not seeing well, it. Well, <laughs> it, it, yeah, yeah, your dad may have been right, but ours is good too. <laughs> but this, this, this garbage nowadays, man, we it, it's a lost generation for music. And I'm a music guy, and I'm saying that. But uh, <laughs> well, hey, man, I, I appreciate you coming on. A good conversation. Right. I'll, I'll let you know when it when it goes live and all that. Appreciate you, man. Good, man. Edit me well and make me sound, right. you know. <laughs> Not like a total idiot. No, you know, if I had too many ums and uhs and ums, you know, delete those. Uh, oh, I'll do that. Oh, no, I'll put them all at the front before anything there else you go. is said. Like two minutes Any of the <laughs> blooper, blooper video or, yeah. or audio. <laughs> all right, man. All right, man. Bye. Thank you. Now that we have completed the ropes course and trust falls, go check out Jay's TED Talk. It's on YouTube under Jay Agee.